0: Hello, this is Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, and this is the final episode of Dialogue Heritage, a podcast series exploring the history of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought through the lens of LDS history, American history, and academic history. Each episode, we discuss a five-year period of the journal's history from the founding in 1966 until today. This week, we're discussing 2015 to 2020. I want to thank the listeners who have taken this journey with us of nearly 55 years of dialogue. It's an ambitious undertaking to try to efficiently review the history and to tell the story. Of course, I was familiar with dialogue before and had read and at least dabbled in Devery Anderson's series on the history of dialogue that covered the first 30 years. But I honestly learned so much and more through this deep dive and also felt that I had to leave so many nuggets on the table because we just didn't have the time. It's very preliminary, but I want to announce my ambition at least to do a second season of Dialogue Heritage that dives more into depth if we can secure the financing. If you've liked this series and others, including the amazingly produced Dialogue Out Loud episodes that bring the fiction and essays from Dialogue to life, consider a generous donation for our year-end fundraiser. So, to catch us up and finish off this historical overview. In 2015, Christine Hagland is still editor, capping off her amazing seven-year tenure. I noticed that there were some huge swings in page length during this time period. There were some short issues of 150, 170, 180 pages. But then, when Boyd Peterson takes over, there are some huge issues, some close to 300 pages. When we moved to the University of Illinois Press at the beginning of 2020, we were limited to 200 pages an issue, and that's our target now, which brings our production costs into more predictable territory. Boyd Peterson takes over in the spring of 2016. Peterson is a well known figure in LDS intellectual circles, author of the important biography of Hugh Nibley, and a professor at Utah Valley University. And he has a number of important essays. From his inaugural issue, he writes, Before beginning my tenure, I read Devery Anderson's four-part history of dialogue and reviewed its five decades of content. I'm surprised at how little has changed and how relevant much of that content remains. I shared I, I, so much of this I shared when I took over myself. I have also realized how revolutionary the Internet has been. When Dialogue moved from California to Virginia and then from Virginia to Utah, it required a moving truck. The journal needed extensive office space to house the staff required to publish and distribute the journal. No moving vans were necessary for the move to Boston, from Boston to Orem, and email and Dropbox allowed me to work with the editors and production staff from around the world. I had much the same reaction Upon hearing about the hunt for office space and the managing of various employees and the transfer of a huge apparatus when editors changed, probably a lot of that stuff is sitting in the, some previous editor's basement still. But things have changed and we're a much slicker, smoother operation these days, and I have to say I'm quite grateful for that. He also writes, dialogue is, I believe, even more important today than it was in 1966. And I have to say, I really resonated with that as well, as I reflected on just how important that current conversations are, the wide audience that dialogue has, and the way that we've been able to continue to tackle some of the toughest and most enduring questions of what it means to be a Latter-day Saint and the scholarship around the history of the tradition. What were the big stories that shaped this five-year period? We mentioned this last time, but it becomes harder and harder to discern the historical significance of things the closer that we get. But I think that we can confidently state that the era of the internet faith crisis is well underway. Growth in the church is shrinking. LGBT issues and ordained women are pushing more people away. Not ordained women as a movement, but the, the, the concept of women's leadership. And there's statistical evidence to show that this is the case. But there are a number of folks that are willing to stick with it, even through these tough issues. In the broader context, the Supreme Court legalizes same-sex marriage at the very beginning of this period, in summer of 2015. By November of 2015, the policy of exclusion comes out, which bars the children of same-sex parents from baptism in the LDS church. It caused immediate confusion and backlash and was rescinded a few years later, but it was huge news during this period. Trump is, of course, elected in a stunning upset in 2016, losing the popular vote, but eking out an electoral college victory in a few battleground states and inaugurating an era of divisiveness in U.S. culture. 2016 is also the 50th anniversary for dialogue, and there was a major celebration. I was living far away at the time and couldn't attend, but I was jealous of those who did and I enjoyed the pictures of a veritable who's who at the event. Dialogue also changes its financial model during this time, moving away from a paywall for the more recent content to freely providing all content as soon as it was available. That meant that we relied even more on donations rather than digital or print subscriptions. In the church, things are changing in this period, too. We get a new president of the church. President Nelson succeeds President Monson, who'd been ailing for years. Nelson institutes a number of sweeping changes, including getting rid of Mormon and the term Mormon. And for a time, the journal had to struggle to figure out what to do with this label. Not to get too into the weeds just yet, but the fall 2019 issue of Dialogue, as a roundtable on this topic with scholars, activists, journalists, and publishers. Nelson also changed the temper rituals, the missionary program, and others that were seen as big steps forward and some that people criticized. As we dive into the journal, let's start with LGBTQ issues. The summer 2016 issue was the first one published after the November 2015 Policy of Exclusion barred children of same-sex families from baptism and other rights of membership. And the, 20, the summer 2016 issue takes this up. It has articles on suicide, for instance, the LGBTQ Mormon crisis responding to the empirical research on suicide by Michael, Michael Barker, Daniel Parkinson, and Benjamin Knoll. They argued that it's impossible to draw direct correlations, but strong connections suggest a public health crisis Around LGBT, LGBTQ uh, rhetoric and suicide. It also corrects a lot of misinformation about the data. Benjamin Knoll also has an article in this same issue Youth Suicide Rates in Mormon Religious Context that gets into a little bit deeper some of the broader issues around suicide in the Mountain West. Other LGBT-related content comes out in the summer 2016 issue, including personal essays by Christian Harrison and Ronnie Jo Draper writes about the art of queering boundaries in LDS communities. There's also a great series by Kimberly Anderson, The Mama Dragon Story Project. Anderson had interviewed and photographed hundreds of people for a project on The Mama Dragons, an advocacy advocacy group for LGBT youth, Photographs and profiles of several influential women in that group appear in this issue. And one of the most important articles from this time period is by Bryce Cook. What do we know of God's will for his LGBT children? An examination of the LDS Church's position on homosexuality. One of the more popular articles, Cook offers a critical reappraisal of LDS teachings on homosexuality and urges for a more open and loving approach. Feminism is, of course, a major topic during this time period as well. And the summer 2015 art issue has an article by Corey Crawford, The Struggle for Female Authority in Biblical and Mormon Theology, which engaged the question of precedent for women's ordination. He argues, "...the historical origins of the gender ban have not yet been addressed with the same degree of attention in church discourse." The recent statements made by the church on the racial priesthood ban strongly emphasize the impact of 19th century U.S. racial politics had on the development of the priesthood ban for members of African descent. But no such discussion of culture and gender politics has yet been addressed in LDS church publications on gender and the priesthood. Crawford looks at both the cultural context of ancient Israelite priesthood and modern LDS priesthood, to identify a genealogy of the gender ban. In my view, this is the definitive article on this topic, and I highly recommend it. I'd also commend here Roger Terry's two-part series, Authority and Priesthood in the LDS Church from the spring and summer 2018 uh, issues for more context on LDS Church teachings on priesthood in general. In the spring 2016 issue, we have an article by Fiona Gibbons, now at the BYU-Maxwell Institute. Quote, I'm sorry, the title is The Perfect Union of Man and Woman, Reclamation and Collaboration in Joseph Smith's Theology Making, for her feminist take on uh, Joseph Smith's theology. In spring 2017, we have a feminist roundtable, Maxine Hanks, Shifting Boundaries of Feminist Theology, What Have We Learned? Medi-Ivy Harrison, When Feminists Excommunicate, and Nylon McBain, Mormon Women and the Anatomy of Belonging. Hanks, who was excommunicated in the September 6th episode of 1993, returned to the church in 2012 and reflected on the shifting ground of feminist historical and theological thought in the intervening two decades. Hanks's comeback also includes an interview in Spring 2019, LDS Women's Authority and the Temple, a feminist FHE discussion with Maxine Hanks. Spring 2019 also has an article by Jody England Hanson on the temple. Condemn me not. She writes, I am grateful for what was removed. This is referring to the changes that Nelson had made to the temple. I'm grateful for what was removed, which consisted of much of the sexist language and action. There are still words that distinguish gender roles, and there are still differences in some of the ordinances between men and women. I see the changes as a step toward more equitable language, but not achieving true gender equality at the linguistic level. I'm concerned about some of the added phrases. Catherine Knight Sontag also has an eco-feminist article in the same issue called The Mother Tree. The spring 2020 issue, still on feminist issues, was guest edited by our friends at Exponent 2 as the editorship transitioned away from Boyd Peterson to myself at the end of 2019. Margaret Olson Hemming puts together an amazing issue that really put forward some new kinds of feminist scholarship. Brittany Romanello's Multiculturalism as Resistance, Latina Migrants Navigate U.S. Mormon Spaces, and Amanda Amanda Hendricks Komodo's. The other crimes, abortion and contraception in 19th and 20th century Utah are excellent. The article on abortion is, I think, the first history of abortion in Mormon studies and benefits from the new histories that show that abortion was incredibly common in 19th and 20th century, in the 19th and early 20th century, including in Utah. Tons of other great content in this issue, including some fascinating interviews, one with Emily Clyde Curtis, a former classmate of mine at Harvard Divinity School, called Women, Mormon Women in the Ministry, that talks about her work as a chaplain, and Barbara Christiansen, another old friend of mine, Women in Workplace Power. Polygamy is another topic that gets some new treatment during this time period. The fall 2016 issue has several articles dedicated to the issue. Sam Brown discusses Joseph Smith's reading of the biblical Levirate Widow. Carolyn Lynn Pearson uh, writes The Celestial Law, and it also gives her beautiful treatment, personal treatment, telling the story of her great grandmother, Mary Cooper O'Kay who was in the year 1873 had the good sense and courage to say no to polygamy, writes Pearson. William V. Smith has a great article that's, that's worth recommending, a documentary note on a letter to Joseph Smith, Romance, Death, and Polygamy in the Winter 2016 issue that discusses a remarkable letter from a young woman to Joseph Smith in 1843 offering new insight into the historical practices of polygamy. Three essays from this period, I think, also capture the diverse attitudes towards polygamy that were emerging in Mormon studies circles. The fall of 2016, that special issue on polygamy, has a great article from Jennifer Huss-Basket, a view from the inside, how critical ethnography changed my mind about polygamy. She's an anthropologist who reflects on the wave of a number of mostly women scholars of polygamy who are bringing greater nuance to the contemporary practice by closely studying those who are engaged in it. The fall of 2016 also has another article that takes a slightly different perspective. Stephen Carter reflects in Scared Sacred, how the horrifying story of Joseph Smith's polygamy can help save us. He writes, the story of Joseph Smith is a disturbing one. But my thesis is that there is one of them that it is also one of the most essential stories Mormonism has a modern day version of the story of Abraham and Isaac, a story uniquely capable of shocking Latter-day Saints, not out of the church, but into a deeper relationship with the divine. He compares the story of Abraham and Isaac to the Joseph Smith story. And rather than changing his mind in a way that's more positive toward polygamy, says that uh, that we're supposed to be scared sacred by this story. Blair Osler's provocative queer polygamy in spring 2019 offers yet another take on the way that Latter-day Saint scholars are starting to think about polygamy during this era. This article critiques patriarchal polygamy, but Blair argues that queer polygamy is an alternative for, quote, how plural marriage may be redeemed to accommodate diverse relationships and desires. Scholarship on Joseph Smith continues to develop as well. Uh, We talked about that letter written to Joseph Smith uh, in in the previous section on polygamy, but there are a number of other articles reassessing this, including the winter 2016 article by William Davis, reassessing Joseph Smith Jr.'s formal education. This is really a landmark article in reestablishing the uh, the education level of Joseph Smith as he had often been depicted as uneducated and Davis really shows the ways in which that's not quite accurate. Fall of 2019 has Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon co-founders of a movement, another important reassessment of the early Mormon experience. And in the summer of 2020, Lawrence Foster returns to dialogue with his take on a classic problem, Why the Prophet is a Puzzle, the Challenges of Using Psychological Perspectives to Understand the Character and Motivation of Joseph Smith, Jr. Not quite only Joseph Smith, but the first ever commentary on the Joseph Smith translation from a longtime contributor and friend of dialogue, Kevin Barney, is a commentary on Joseph Smith's revision of 1 Corinthians, which recategorizes the kinds of changes that Joseph Smith makes in his Bible translation project through close textual analysis. This also comes out in the summer 2020 issue. Colby Townsend has another home run with his fall 2020 revisiting Joseph Smith and the availability of the book of Enoch, which settles, I think, once and for all, a long standing debate since Hugh Nibley and D. Michael Quinn over whether or not Joseph Smith would have had access to the themes of 1 Enoch as he composed the Enoch narrative in the Book of Moses. Spoiler alert, he did. The Book of Mormon also has a lot of great new scholarship coming out during this time period. We're really starting to see new ground in Book of Mormon research during this era. In addition to Peter McMurray's groundbreaking article, Check out, which we'll discuss in a little bit, check out the University of Utah religious studies scholar, Colleen McDaniel, Mexicans, Tourism, and Book of Mormon Geography in the summer of 2020. Colby Townsend's got another great article during this time period, Behold, other scriptures I would that ye should write, Malachi in the Book of Mormon, which takes a fresh look at post-exilic texts from the Hebrew Bible, and their use in the Book of Mormon. Brian Hales also contributes to this with Automatic Writing and the Book of Mormon, an update in the summer of 2019, and an article that advances the emerging debate on Book of Mormon translation that's really heating up these days with all kinds of new scholarship, including an important new article from William Davis, once again, who has an article out in the fall of 2020 comparing Joseph Smith's translation project with another previously uncompared 19th century miraculous translator. Ryan Thomas's article, The Gold Plates and Ancient Metal Epigraphy, is the definitive study of ancient metalworking for writing and won a John Whitmer Award for Best Article of 2019. Other important articles in the summer of 2020 issue on the Book of Mormon are from Larry Morris, Empirical Witnesses of the Gold Plates, And Rebecca Riesler, Plain and Precious Things Lost, The Small Plates of Nephi. William Davis's uh, article, The Limits of Naturalistic Criteria for the Book of Mormon, comparing Joseph Smith and Andrew Jackson Davis, is truly groundbreaking. And again, contributes to that conversation that Brian Hales and others have been having. There's also a social science revolution going on a new generation taking up the mantle of Armand Moss in Jana Reese and Benjamin Knoll. They write, Infected with Doubt. This is the first major study that attempted to quantify and analyze doubt in the LDS community based on insights from the Next Mormon survey that was the basis of Reese's book, The Next Mormons. Really quite fascinating. Another, do you ever wonder why younger Mormons drink iced, drink iced coffee? not to mention caffeinated soda. Jana Reese, Benjamin Knoll, and John Ferguson write The Word of Wisdom in Contemporary American Mormonism Perceptions and Practices that really upends a lot of the basic understandings of what Latter-day Saints believe around the Word of Wisdom. Mormon theology is another area where we see a lot of developments. Sam Brown's got a great article Mormons probably aren't materialists in the fall of 2017. Levi Chekets has Thomas Aquinas meets Joseph Smith toward a Mormon ethics of natural law in spring 2018. And a wonderful article by Terrell Givens, Heretics in Truth, Love, Faith, and Hope as the Foundation for Theology, Community, and Destiny. That's a reflection on the Pauline virtues of charity, love, charity, faith, and hope. Russell Arben Fox has a lovely essay on Mormon communal agrarianism in what size of city and what sort of city could or should the city of Zion be in summer 2020. And James Faulkner and Jenny Webb have a pair of articles in fall 2020 on performative theology, an anti-modernist or perhaps post-modernist approach to scriptural interpretation. Race and decolonization are another issue that comes up a lot during this time period. Ignacio Garcia from BYU History and later chair of the Mormon History Association writes, thoughts on Latino Mormons, their afterlife and the need for a new historical paradigm for saints of color. We also have an article by Robert Goldberg from the University of Utah. Can Mormons be white in America? Gina Colvin's, there's no such thing as gospel culture and Moroni Benali's decolonizing and blossoming indigenous people's faith in a colonizing church. All from the winter 2017 issue. In fall 2018, we have the 40-year anniversary of the end of the priesthood restrictions based on race, and Lester Bush comes back to the journal to reflect on his own article from 45 years earlier. Looking back, looking forward, Mormonism's Negro Doctrine 45 years later for a great retrospective on the impact of that doctrine and the impact of that article. Darren Smith writes, negotiating black self-hatred within the LDS church. Joanna Brooks, the possessive investment of whiteness, white supremacy in the Mormon movement is a part of her 2020 book, Mormonism and White Supremacy. Matthew Harris's Mormons and Lineage, the Complicated History of Blacks and Patriarchal Blessings, 1830 to 2018, is a great article. There's also a roundtable with leading black LDS voices on blackness and LDS contexts from this time, from this uh, issue as well. Fall 2019, Rebecca Schweinitz has, There is no equality, William Barrett, BYU, and the healing wounds of racism in the Latter-day Saint past and present is about William Barrett, a popular LDS teacher and author who held high positions at BYU and the church educational system and was a big public defender of the racial restrictions on the priesthood and further institutionalized white supremacy at BYU and in the church. Environmental issues are a part of this era as well. We talked about the eco-feminist article of Catherine Knight Sontag before, but the winter 2019 issue of dialogue is dedicated to the environment. There are too many articles to name, but I want to call your attention to the whole series of great content from that one. I mentioned that this is also the 50th anniversary of dialogue during this time period in 2016. And Bob Reese has an article on Mormonism and liberalism, praising founder Eugene England's enduring influence in the second half of the 20th century. Francis Lee Menlove, one of the founders who is still around, also writes the unending conversation for Dialogue's Jubilee celebration. Here's what she says. The philosophy cries out, save us from an unexamined faith. Save us from false certainty and narrowness. Celebrate our arts and letters. Puzzle over old and new ethical dilemmas. Champion the values and necessity of free agency. Stay committed to inquiry, the duty to seek truth. Be ever skeptical of absolute claims to truth. Remind us that we are committed to staying in relationship, living in tension, struggling and rejoicing with the ultimate mystery of God. Always be vigilant of our blind spots shape us into a community of trust. Announce that we are ready to talk, to dialogue. A couple of other issues that I want to just call attention to as we come to a close of this series is an essay by Samuel Brunson, the present, the past, and future of LDS financial transparency that comes out in the spring 2015 issue. He talks about from 1915 continuing until until, until 1959, the church made an annual public disclosure of its finances. But he writes, in 1959, in the wake of significant deficit spending by the church and massive investment losses, the church ended its detailed public financial disclosure and instead limited its financial disclosure to the auditing department report. As a result of its silence about the details of its finances, members, critics, and the interested public have been left to guess at the church's wealth and the scope of the charitable spending, among other things. He discusses the theory of why financial disclosures are a good idea, the motives for disclosure in an earlier era, which work to convince members to pay more tithing, and a prediction that the church will not change its disclosure practices. Instead, he advocates that external auditors be engaged to increased trust. Now, again, breaking news from last year suggested just how large the church's finances have grown since 1959 when they were deficit spending. Uh, and so there's more to this story, but this is a really an essential piece in understanding and unpacking what the church's financial disclosure history and philosophy has been. The winter 2015 issue is a special issue on Mormonism and sound, which was guest edited by Michael Hicks. It includes an essay, really quite remarkable essay by Peter McMurray, A Voice Crying from the Dust, The Book of Mormon as Sound, which is an unprecedented look at the Book of Mormon. Like all scripture, it says, as a deeply sonic text. Emily Spencer has an issue, has an article in this issue, Why Mormons Sing in Parts or Don't, to talk about what your ward choir generally sounds like. And great musical scholar, Jake Johnson, Mormons, Musical Theater, and the Public Arena of Doubt, which plays a role in his uh, book, Mormons and Musical Theory, that was published in 2019. There's also a, number of exchanges on Catholic Mormon dialogue in spring 2016. There's a Catholic Mormon dialogue section, and it's worth noting that important Catholic thinker Stephen Webb, who was a big fan of Mormonism, had died prematurely in 2015. There's an in memoriam published in the fall of 2016. Summer 2018 has Gary topping Mormon Catholic relations in Utah history, a sketch. There's another one that we'll kind of end with, which is Gerontocracy and the Future of Mormonism. Greg Prince, Lester Bush, Brett Rushforth are commenting on the resignation of Pope Benedict XVI, quote, for half a century prior to President Hinckley's death, the transition from one church president to the next was often characterized by long periods of decline in the physical and or mental health of the sitting president and upon his death, the succession of a man increasingly advanced in age. Hinckley had been an exception to the rule that has really governed the way that church leaders have been in that role since the 1950s, often in diminished capacities. That's it for this episode. I want to just underline again How grateful I am for the support of all of those of you who've been interested in the history of dialogue and have taken this journey with me. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture, like the Mormon News Report. Check out that show and all the other shows at Dialogjournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's Dialogjournal.com slash Podcast Network. I want to just mention that in the coming weeks we'll be releasing some exciting audio short stories taken from the pages of our quarterly journal. These stories really bring to life the diversity of voices and perspectives that we like to support here at Dialogue, and we're really looking forward to sharing it with you. Here's a sneak peek of this new exciting content for the Dialogue Out Loud series.
1: He opens the door and steps outside into the warm sun. And he is no longer he. He is someone else. He is now a woman. She turns from her desk in her shared workroom at the top of the city's tallest tower, made of stem cell ivory. Then, the miracle happened. Before God, I'm telling this. There on the stand, as we looked, stood not Brigham, but Joseph... My dad has always been a very political man. Growing up, if he had control of the TV, there was a decent chance that Fox News would be playing. This woman is not Mormon. She is younger than he is, but is still middle-aged like he is. She's married, like he. She is married to a woman. But I says to Cinda, do you feel happy in your mind concerning the work of God? And Cinda answered, Yes. Oh yes, for I know it is right, but oh Phineas, I did so want a home.